Hey, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm really excited to be able to be with you this morning. Uh, I want to share with you a little bit. Um, last night, my wife and I had an amazing opportunity. Some of you know us. Some of you, I'm a complete stranger. I understand. Uh, my wife uh, and our family have been deeply involved with the cystic fibrosis community for many years uh, because of our, our sons have cystic fibrosis. And um, Last night, I had the opportunity to host a large fundraising event on behalf of the foundation here in town, and it was a really great opportunity. And one of the things that happens at those events is uh, I run into a community of people who I experience something with that is unique because we've all uh, been affected by this disease. Many of us have lost children and loved ones because of it. There is a unique bond that happens there in that moment in that some of those people I don't see but once every year or two, and yet when we interact... I'm immediately connected with them. In fact, we met a few new people last night and laughed and cried with them like we'd been friends forever because of the shared bond that we have. And uh, for, for many of the people that are there, that's the only opportunity that they have to really be known and understood and seen at a really deep core level. Um, and we experienced that last night. And yet, in the middle of it, as we were kind of making our way around this environment and shaking hands and hugging people, Rachel, my wife, turned to me and she said, I keep having to remind myself that this isn't our church community, it's our CF community. And I, and I knew what she meant uh, because... For many of those people, that's the only environment that they experience what they experienced last night, feeling known, seen, loved, understood. And yet we have the blessing of being a part of this community for over two decades in which every single week I feel that. I walk around this room and I see people who I know and who know me and who know our family and who are invested in us and love us. And I'm so thankful for this place. And I know for some of you, you go, I know exactly what you're talking about. And for others of you, you might say, this is my very first week here. I don't know what that looks like. But, you know, when Sean talks about that membership class, it's, it's much more than just being a formal part of something. It's really a part of being a family where you can be known and loved and understood. And I just want to encourage you to engage in that way. This is a meaningful Place And this morning, I'm, I'm really excited about the opportunity that I have to be able to teach. Uh, we're going to be transitioning here in our sermon series, We Want a King. We're spending time going through the first three kings that oversaw the nation of Israel. And today we transition to the last of those three kings, Solomon. Uh, we had a unique opportunity in the world over the last month or so, which has rarely happened. In fact, I would say for most of us in the, this room, in our lifetimes, this is the very first time this has ever happened. We experienced succession in the monarchy. Now, monarchies, whatever, they're kind of an old-fashioned idea. I get it. Even when we talk about it in the Western world, at least, we have one place that we look, and it's in Britain. Uh, and as you can see here, you know, there's Queen Elizabeth looking lovely in her young age as the queen. Uh, and then there's Charles looking slightly less lovely, but, you know, whatever. He looks nice. That's a nice uniform, whatever that is. Uh, and he, be, he becomes the king. Now, part of it is that we understood the expectation that when Elizabeth, who was very old and kept getting older and older, and people started to wonder if maybe she was immortal somehow, uh, but we did know when she dies, we know what to expect. When Elizabeth dies, Charles is next up, assuming something doesn't happen to Charles before she croaks, right? That's kind of the way the thing works. Uh, and as Americans, that's probably as much attention as we've given to it. I, I want to show you a chart 
because it's not quite as simple as that. Here's what the chart of the British line of succession looks like. This is just the immediate family. Uh, there's, you don't, there's not going to be a test later, don't worry. You have to have, don't have to study it too difficultly. Uh, but over here is Charles. There's number one, right? He's the guy who becomes the king. And then you kind of follow down the line. The one I really want to point out is over here, Edward. Edward's 14, and yet he is a full brother of Charles, and his mom was the queen, and yet there's going to have to be a lot of tragedy going on for him to ever become king. This is kind of the way it works. There's an expected order. They've, somebody has a job somewhere, I'm guessing, in the British government where they keep track of all this stuff and how these things all work. Uh, and, and there's an expected easy transition of power that happens when the throne is left. In 1 Kings, as we transition out of 2 Samuel into 1 Kings, uh, we are left with a huge question. And the question is this, who will sit on the throne of the great King David? There's a kind of an awkward moment at the end of 2 Samuel last week. uh, Paul led us through, I think it was chapter maybe 24, and it's the last chapter in that book. And in that chapter, David is a vital king who's still making rulings and mistakes and doing all the things that kings do. And then we transition to the very next chapter in our Bible, 1 Kings chapter 1, and suddenly David is a very old man. This is, a, um, this is an old portrait that someone put together, a photographer that was supposed to illustrate what King David looked like at the end of his life. He was probably in his early 70s when he died, which in that day and age would have been very old. In fact, most people in those days would have lived into their 40s and then died, so I would have been getting ready to kick it. Um, but David, was, he was an old man. And what we see in 1 Kings chapter 1 is he is on his deathbed. He's in bed. He, he's seeming to have lost a lot of his mental faculties. He's certainly losing his health and his vitality. Uh, in fact, the text tells us that he can't even stay warm. That, I mean, I've never experienced that, but I'm guessing at the end of your life that's not a good thing. And David is doing what David has done his entire life, which is blowing off his responsibility. I'd love to tell you that the Bible tells you that the weaknesses that you have younger in life are, do not become weaknesses later in life or you overcome them. And yet there's a lot of stories that tell us, no, you're going to struggle with many of the same things you struggle with younger in life. And David is no different. David should have been wisely planning for succession. Instead, he is now at the point where he's almost going to die, and he doesn't seem to really even know what's going on around him, and what it leaves is a power vacuum there in the nation. There's a quote here from uh, a famous novel called The Prince by a man named Machiavelli. It says, the best fortress which a prince can possess is the affection of his people. And we see that as David is starting to disappear from public life, what he is beginning to lose is the trust of those that are around him, that he is going to do the right thing. And people that are nearby start to force the issue in the power vacuum. Now, I know that I said that it wasn't quite as neat and tidy as that British line of succession illustrated, but there was an expected way to hand down authority. It was through the eldest son. That's kind of how it went, even in the ancient Near East, even in a kingdom. Here's the problem in David's life. His life is a mess, and we've studied it. Here's what his boys in his most... Uh, acceptable part of his family, his wife and his first three sons would have been this. The first one would have been Amnon. The problem is Amnon is the one who raped his half-sister and then was murdered by his brother Absalom. So he's out of the picture. 
And then Absalom, rather than saying, I'm going to wait on my father's affections because David loved Absalom, he decided to orchestrate a coup early in life and take over the kingdom before David was ready to hand it over. And Absalom ends up hung up in a tree by his hair and gets stabbed by a sword and died. The whole thing. It's a mess. Absalom's now dead, which leaves the third guy up, Adonijah, catchy name that he has. But Adonijah has watched the mess that his older brothers have uh, committed, and, and it seems, although we don't know much about him, that he has committed himself to waiting it out. I'm going to wait until dad dies or gets close to death and he hands the kingdom to me, and then I'll be the rightful heir to the nation. The problem is David neglects to ever do it. In fact, it's starting to look like David's going to die and never hand off the authority of the kingship. And so Adonijah takes on himself the ability to be inaugurated as king. So he gathers together uh, some folks. He gets uh, Joab, who's the general of the army, and he gets one of the key high pri- the priests of the religious order there in town, and he gathers them together along with all of his supporters, and they go about a half mile outside of the city walls, and he orchestrates a ceremony in which he will declare himself king. I'm the king. After all, I'm the rightful next up, and David is asleep at the wheel, uh, and so I'm going to take this on myself. And so he's having this moment where he's being inaugurated as king, a giant meal in which all the friends are gathered together. In the background, uh, we have two characters that arrive back on the scene who haven't showed up for about two decades, Bathsheba. I don't know if you've, if you've been following the series, uh, you know Bathsheba is a woman who David took from her husband, or slept with her, got her pregnant, orchestrated that her husband would be murdered in battle so that he could cover up his sin. Nathan, the prophet, knows what has happened and confronts David. And David is embarrassed, humiliated, shamed, and repents for his sin. And the punishment that is enacted is that the baby that is conceived between him and Bathsheba dies in infancy. But he brings her in and makes her a wife, and he impregnates her again, and she has a son named Solomon. And inside the palace, while this intrigue is happening just outside of the city walls, orchestrating a new kingship, Bathsheba goes to her friend Nathan the prophet, who they obviously have a relationship because of the way he defended her all those years ago, and, he's, and she says, I don't know if you know what is going on, but there is big trouble afoot. Adonijah is out there taking the kingship for himself, and I don't know if you noticed, but we weren't invited to the party. And that's not a good sign, because I know what's going to happen. When David is no longer here to protect us, they're going to kill me, and they're going to kill you, and they're going to kill my boy Solomon, and that's unacceptable. we got to do something about this. And Bathsheba then says to Nathan, I don't know if you know this, but David, when Solomon was born, made a promise to me. He said that Solomon would be the one that would take his throne. Now, the interesting part about that is that there is nowhere in the text, in First or Second Samuel, where this conversation ever is recorded. That doesn't mean it didn't happen, but we don't have any evidence of it in the text. So either this was a secret conversation that David had with Bathsheba trying to make things up to her, or possibly, in an act of self-preservation, 
Bathsheba decides that David in his old senile old age, they could pull something over on him. We don't know exactly, but we do know that Nathan the prophet says he's going to go along with it. And so they approach David in, on his deathbed and say, David, you made a promise to me. And Nathan probably helps a little bit with the guilt reminding David about what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband. And says, you promised to her that Solomon would be the one. And I don't know if you know what's going on right now, but right now, your son, Adonijah, is out there claiming the kingship for himself, and they're going to kill us. You know that's what's going to happen. And David, in a last effort to do the right thing, says, you're right, I made that promise. Solomon will be the rightful heir to the throne. Let's do it right now. And they call Solomon king, they anoint him, they set him on the throne, and they announce to the city of Jerusalem that a new king sits on the throne of King David. And the entire city erupts in this absolute huge rejoicing because a new king sits on the throne. And the guys who are having the secret party about a half mile outside of town suddenly hear the cheers, and they get worried looks in their eyes. This is not going the way that we planned. There's this great quote from I'm sure you're familiar with Sun Xu, the ancient uh, Chinese philosopher, as we all are. He wrote a famous book called The Art of War. This is something that he says in it. He says, what is of supreme importance at war is to attack the enemy's strategy, disrupt his alliances, do not allow your enemies to get together. If you can't nip his plans in the bud, disrupt his alliances when they're about to be consummated. This is exactly what Bathsheba and David and Nathan all put together right here in this moment. They're out there conspiring, putting together the new kingship. We're going to stop it right now before it can be finished. And they inaugurate Solomon, and the cheer goes up, and everybody panics. In fact, it says there's this great moment where they go outside of the temple where they're holding the party outside the city walls, and somebody's coming down the road, and they say, hey, what's going on up there? And they say, oh, didn't you hear? There's a new king on the throne. His name is Solomon. And they all scatter like rats because they're terrified about what's going to happen. And in that moment, we have Solomon, who is now going to sit on the throne. Uh, we don't know exactly, but most scholars believe Solomon is probably about 15 years old at the time he becomes the new king of Israel. Solomon is now the king over this nation. One of the commentaries I read during, this, uh, during my study said this, the era of David and Solomon is commonly known as the united monarchy. This period, which lasted from 1000 to 931 B.C., was a time in which Israel became the dominant nation in the ancient Near East. David's successful military campaigns extended his control over the neighboring and distant lands, while Solomon's administration capitalized on Israel's strength to bring vast wealth and cultural resources into the empire. Israel became a mini-empire. Because I'm a nerd, I have brought a map. Uh, this hopefully helps you to kind of understand the scope of what has happened. These, this colored section right here in the middle where it's kind of orange and purple, these, this was Israel at the time of Saul before the kingdom became David's. And then David, through his military might and strategy, has defeated and brought into the nation this entire area. The, the red line actually um, is where they suspect that Solomon's influence went to, but this yellow area is the entire thing that David has brought together under his military might. And you can see, you might recognize some of the names that are up here. You have the Ammonites who were defeated, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Amalekites. I always get that one wrong. And then the Philistines, they still haven't gotten rid of. These guys have been a problem forever. That's where Goliath came from. They still have a little bit of the West Bank right here, uh, where current Palestine actually still exists. 
And Israel has created this massive empire. So you can understand why there is a battle for control over this place. It's there that we open in 1 Kings chapter 3. If you'd like to follow along, you can in, your, in the scriptures. I'm going to have the text up here. But before we get into the text, I'd, I'd ask for you to join me in prayer. We're going to talk today about wisdom. Um, and, I, and I want to petition God to meet us here this morning because we need his wisdom to understand. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to gather together on this beautiful morning. God, thank you for the stories of your faithfulness to this nation, Israel, and what was going on there. God, we pray we can glean from it knowledge and wisdom. God, we pray that that knowledge and wisdom would transform us to be more faithful people in the world. God, we want to be transformed by your word. Help apply that word to our lives through the work of your Holy Spirit this morning and be with me as the words that I've prepared can hopefully impact this church this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. So I'll stop there for a second. If you want evidence of how influential Israel has become, how big they are, how powerful they are, Solomon, in one of his first acts as king, demands an alliance from Pharaoh. Notice it doesn't say Pharaoh came to Solomon, the new king, and asks for his daughter. In fact, Solomon goes to Pharaoh to work out this alliance and gets a daughter in return, which tells you the state of, Israel, of Egypt and the state of Israel at this time. It says he brought her into the city of David. This is the city that David set up that's just south of what the current Temple Mount would be in Israel now, in Jerusalem now. And he brought her there until he finished building his palace and the temple to the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. One of the things Solomon is going to do is he's going to build the great city of Jerusalem and he's going to build the first official permanent temple to the Lord and centralize worship for Israel in this place. That has not happened yet. It's underway. It says the people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places. If you remember over the last number of months as we've been working through this, uh, particularly when we go back to Samuel, the prophet, he would work around the countryside and lead worship in, in all these communities. And in those communities and nearby, they had high places, places where they would conduct religious ceremonies. They were still sacrificing at this point at the high places because the temple hadn't been built. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given to him by his father David, except he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. What were the instructions that David gave him? Uh, my son Asher is turning 15 next week, uh, so reading about a, a father installing his 15-year-old son as the king of the nation, I can feel the tension that goes along with that. Uh, and so I understand the instructions that David gave to his boy. Here's what he says, be strong and act like a man. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees and his commands, his laws, his regulations, as is written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. The text tells us that Solomon lived out the instructions that David gave him on his deathbed to follow after God. So the king, Solomon, went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. 
for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Solomon, in one of his very first acts, in an effort to honor his father David's legacy, takes an entourage to Gibeon, the most important high place in the nation, and he brings with him a thousand sacrifices to be made on this place. It is quite the ordeal. Here's a picture of what Gibeon looks like. It's been excavated. It's about three miles north of the city of Jerusalem. You can see here the footprint of the old high place. It was a place of worship. You wouldn't call it the temple because that obviously is the place in Jerusalem, but if you think about it like a temple, you're in the right neighborhood. Uh, I think this is actually, as should be no surprise, Israel has been overrun by essentially every major force in that area. There's currently an ancient, I think this is an ancient mosque actually that sits right on the edge of this. This is the place where Solomon, in an effort to honor his father, brings all of these sacrifices. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. This might seem odd, but it was very common, especially for kings or leaders in that day and in that region, not just within Israel, but even in the surrounding nations, that if you wanted to get enlightenment from the gods not just Yahweh, but any of the gods that they all worshiped in that area. If you wanted him to bless you, if you wanted that God to give you enlightenment, if you wanted that God to reveal something to you, you would go and make sacrifices to the God and then you would sleep in the temple that night in a hope that the God would meet you during your dreams. And it happens for Solomon. God arrives. And Solomon says something, or God says something absolutely crazy to Solomon. Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. Right? As a kid, it seems like one of the most uh, common recurring dream conversations that I would have with my buddies was like, what would happen if you found a genie in a bottle? And the genie told you they'd give you anything that you want, three wishes. And the trick was always that the third wish would be for unlimited wishes because then you'd never want to run out. And every kid said the same thing and we all thought we were really smart. God, and isn't it, it's ironic that we actually treat God this way a lot of times, that he's a genie in a body, that we go to him when we need something, when we want him to manifest something in our lives, we'll go rub the lamp and hopefully God will come out and say, what do you want? I'll give it to you. That actually, if someone came to me with that attitude, I would rebuke them and say, that's not how you should treat God. And yet here God is acting just like a genie in a bottle. He pops out in the middle of the night and he says, hey, oh, Solomon, great, you're here. What do you want? I'll give you anything that you'd like. Me as a nine-year-old boy would have been like, I would like a three-story mansion with a water slide that goes from the top floor all the way down to the bottom and a swimming pool filled with gold coins. Solomon answers, this is what he says, you've shown great kindness to your servant. This is what Kendrick read for us earlier. My father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart, you've continued this great kindness to him and you've given him a son to sit on, this thr- on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father, David, but I'm only a little child and I don't know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. 
It was probably two months ago when um, Paul was working out the preaching calendar for the rest of the year, and uh, he said, hey, I have this date at the end of October I'd like you to preach, and I was like, oh yeah, great, I'm, I'm down, and he said, it's First Kings chapter 3, and I'm like, oh, what a great passage that is, and I ran back to my office, <laughs> and I, I read this, and, I, and standing there in my office, I started weeping. And I started weeping because this resonates with me so much as a pastor who has somehow ended up in part of the responsibility of helping lead this place. And I felt like I was listening to Solomon confess my heart. God, you've called me to help lead this great people of yours. And I'm just a child who doesn't know how to do it. I need your wisdom. Because this is the reality, like, I'm guessing we don't have any kings in the room today. If you are, you can raise your hand and I'll acknowledge you, but um, probably not any kings of great nations in here today. Um, and even, even if you say, you hear me say that about helping lead a church, uh, and, and you go, well, but I'm not a pastor, I don't have that kind of responsibility, I, I understand. But each one of us has been given great responsibility in specific areas of our life in which we're called to enact God's discerning wisdom over the places that he's entrusted to us to lead. Maybe you have a business, maybe you have a family, maybe you have a spouse, maybe you have children, maybe you have a classroom of kids that you care for. Maybe you've just been placed in a neighborhood in which you're asked to be responsible the reality that we see Solomon acknowledge here is that he is in over his head. And the gift that we're given in Solomon's confession of this is that he's 15 years old. He's a young teenage boy who's been given this gigantic empire to rule. And he realizes, because it seems totally obvious, I don't have the faintest idea how to do this and to do it well. We would serve ourselves well to take the gift of his humility and apply it to our own situations. Because this is the reality of every area that we're called to lead. We are in over our heads because wisdom is difficult and leading judiciously with the wisdom of God is absolutely impossible unless God grants you that gift of wisdom. Even if you're only responsible over some small, tiny corner of his kingdom. You've been given that responsibility, and we can do well to follow Solomon's example of humility in this. I love the response that God has. The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked him for this. I love the insinuation that God is almost surprised. He's waiting to hear what he's going to say, like, oh, that's a great answer. My... A couple weeks ago, we took a family trip out to California for fall break, as all good Phoenicians do. Um, we, we do that every fall, and we've done it for, I think this is our 12th year in a row. And my wife is a really good mom, um, so she does all kinds of special little things for the boys. And one of the things that she does uh, for them when we go on a road trip, even just to like California, is she makes what she calls mile markers which she will take the amount of time that we're going to be driving and she divides it up. And this time it was every 75 miles, she would pull out a brown paper bag that was stapled shut and hand it to the boys and be like, this is the 75 mile mile marker. And they'd, oh! even my almost 15 year old is not too jaded yet to get excited about it. And they rip it open and it's got whatever goofy little silly putty and candy bars and, you know, stuff like that for them to look at. And they love it. It's great. It's a tradition. Uh, to the point now that even if we tried to drop it, we, it wouldn't happen because Beck in particular is like, did you plan the mile markers? 
this year she did something different. At the last mile marker, so we had about 75 miles left to go, one of what she pulled out was two um, folders that she had put together um, questionnaires for each of the boys, unique questionnaires for each of the boys with like 20 questions in it and a nice fancy pen for them and handed it to them and said, I want you guys to spend the time as we get to vacation filling this out because I really want to hold on to this to remember you at this point. And they fill out their little thing. Lots of, you know, what do you want to do when you get up or grow up? What's your favorite food? Yeah, that kind of stuff. And then um, as soon as they were finished, they handed them back to us in the front seat and they put whatever, put on their headphones and watch YouTube again or whatever they were doing back there for the rest of the time. And Rachel started reading the answers to me, which was great. And she gets to one that Beck, our 10-year-old, wrote. And the question that she had for him was, if you could be one person on earth for one day, who would it be and why? And I'm like, oh, this, that's a good question. And then he says, Jeff Bezos. And I was like, oh... I know where this is going. Genie in a bottle time. <laughs> uh, but then, then I said, okay, well, what did he say for the why? And he says, so I could give money away to help people. And I was like, oh, man, I'm a better dad than I thought. <laughs> right. When I read this sentence, like, I mean, this is such a tiny version of it, but I felt this, like, I will give you anything that you want. What are you going to ask for? And then Solomon says, I want wisdom so I can discern rightly your people. And God is pleased. Here's the thing about our relationship with God. God can feel so distant, so ephemeral, so uh, other, so holy, so righteous, so different than we are, that it can be very easy to feel very distant from him. Like how could we ever interact with God in a way that was meaningful? How could we ever get his attention? How could he ever be pleased with us? This is what the text tells us. Our pursuit of wisdom pleases the God of the universe. If you want to please God this week, make one of your aims to pursue wisdom in your life. Because what this tells us is that when Solomon says his greatest desire is to pursue wisdom, God is pleased with him. What a joy that must be. God responds back to Solomon out of his pleasure, and this is what he says. Since you have asked for this, and not long life or wealth for yourself, you didn't ask to be Jeff Bezos, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you didn't ask for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience, obedience to me and keep my decrees and commandments your, like your father David did, I will also give you a long life. And then Solomon awoke and he realized that it had all been a dream. What is so great about this is the things that people typically want in their life. And this list is fairly comprehensive that God gives him. What do we want? We want to be rich. What do we want? We want to be honored. What do we want? We want our enemies smiting before us. Just me. <laughs> what do we want? We want to live a long life. What do we want? We want to be remembered. What do we want? We want to be great. But Solomon unlocks in his question the key to all of those things that we actually want, which is wisdom. 
God says, because you chose wisdom, you will get all the other things that you didn't ask for. And we as a people need to be reminded that the goal that we should be aiming for is wisdom in our lives, not these other things. And that does not come with some guarantee that you're going to be a great king we'll have all the greatest wealth in the world if you pursue wisdom. But it shouldn't also be surprising to us that someone who dedicates his life and asks for a holy inter, uh, intervention from God himself to give him wisdom also becomes wealthy and honored and lives a long life. In fact, Solomon, uh, my friend Corey, who's a pastor here, pastor of 710, he said to me this morning, he said, you know, what are you teaching? Oh, great, 1 Kings 3, the wisdom passage. Oh, that's awesome. Do you think that Solomon was wise his whole life? And I told him, I said, I think there is a big difference between having access to wisdom and enacting that wisdom. Because this is the reality. Solomon does not follow through with his wisdom his whole life, but he is obsessed at many points in his life with acquiring wisdom. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 4, this is, this is what he says, Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. That feels like a trick answer, actually. How do I get wisdom? Get, it, get wisdom. Just start there. Though it cost everything you have, get understanding. Solomon understands the importance of the pursuit of wisdom in his life, and what he gives instruction in is that it should be a primary focus for people who want to live faithfully under the God of the universe. Pursue wisdom. How do I start getting wisdom? By getting wisdom. Now, that seems tricky, but fortunately for us, Solomon expanded on some of his ideas on wisdom. In fact, if you'd like to, the book of uh, Proverbs is mostly written or at least pulled from the tradition of Solomon's great wisdom, and you can read through the whole thing. In fact, if you're a woman in the room, I'd love to encourage you to join the women's ministries team who is leading a study through Proverbs right now on Wednesday mornings and evenings uh, that will help you understand some of this. But just let me give you a quick overview of some of the things that Solomon says wise people do because I think it would be helpful. If the key to getting wisdom, to having wisdom is to get wisdom, well, okay, well, that's not super helpful. What do wise people do? On the uh, left-hand side here are individual proverbs from the scriptures. And then I've kind of summarized what I think those things are trying to say here on the right. I probably don't have time to go through each one of these. You can go back on YouTube and pause it if you'd like and look. But I just want to start with, uh, he gives us a better introduction to how to begin with wisdom in Proverbs. And he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow in his precepts have good understanding. What Solomon teaches us is that the wise view God correctly. I know the phrase that the fear of the Lord feels like really kind of an awkward phrase, but what he is trying to get at is this idea that the wise people put God in his proper place in our lives. We understand that our concerns for things and our concerns about how people view us are absolutely secondary to the God who rules over all things. If we put him first, if because of our fear of him, we concern ourselves with his opinion first, we will begin to find wisdom. Secondly, the wise listen to God's voice. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. You go, well, I, I haven't been to a temple and had a dream ceremony recently. How do I hear from God? The scriptures are God's word to you and to us. 
And you can hear from him by spending time in his word. Wise people listen to God's voice. Secondly, the wise submit to other wise voices. We live in a drastically individualistic culture. It's all about you and how you, what you think. And even if you have strong opinions, that's good for you. It doesn't really affect me unless I want to let it affect me. That is not what wisdom describes. Solomon says, listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end you'll be counted among the wise. Wise people listen to other wise voices. That is what community in the church looks like. When I talk to my almost 15-year-old, I tell him there's two ways that you can get wisdom. The first one is that you can bang your own head against every wall and learn every lesson on your own. That's the hard way. That's the dumb way. And you're going to do some of that. The second way is to be open to listening to the voice of other people who banged their head against the wall on your behalf. You can learn from their mistakes and from their wisdom and from their experience. And in the church community, you have a unique opportunity to being wedded together with other people who are also concerned with pursuing wisdom. And you can seek it together. The the last two, the the wise seek knowledge. I think this is absolutely huge. We live in a culture that encourages you to have strong opinions about every topic, and most of those strong opinions are formed by a headline that you read as you scrolled through it on social media. A headline, by the way, that was perfectly designed to get you to think something. And I read two headlines that seemed to agree with what I already thought, therefore I am wise on this topic, and I will tell you how smart I am about it. The the reality is that that is not knowledge. Having a strong opinion doesn't mean you know anything. I hope that doesn't disappoint you too much. It's just true. Just because you have a strong opinion doesn't mean you actually know. Wise people seek actual knowledge. And the last one is the wise pursue humility. Part of pursuing knowledge is understanding I am in over my head in many areas. The best gift that I ever learned as a young pastor was the freedom to say, I don't know. Lots of people come and say, hey, what do you think about X? I don't know. I don't know. We had, a, we had a conversation in our kids' ministry just a few months ago in which they asked me a very complex uh, situation about how we deal with something. And I literally looked at them and I was like, wait, am I supposed to have the answer to this question? I have no idea. We should probably do some time thinking and talking to people and praying about this because I don't know. Now, I know when I say I don't know, there's, a, there's an absolute temptation to say, ah, oh, see, he's not very wise. I'm telling you that's not what the scriptures say. I'm trying to act out wisdom by saying, I don't know, because the wise pursue humility. But here's the reality. Wisdom and knowledge are not the same thing. Wisdom is knowledge applied applied practically. You can know a lot of things and still be stupid. (laughs) I'm just going to say it again. You can know a lot of things and still be stupid. I think it was the heart of what Corey was trying to get at. Was, Was Solomon always wise? No, Solomon had access to wisdom. And sometimes he was stupid because he chose to not enact the wisdom that he had access to. Just because you know a lot doesn't mean you're wise. Wisdom is when you apply that knowledge in a practical way. Let me give you an example. If you came to me tomorrow and said, I'd like to have coffee. Can I meet you in the commons? Uh, I'm not very good about my diet. I don't eat very well. I don't know what to do. 
I could give you a lot of knowledge about how to eat better. But all it takes is one look at me and asking me how much I weigh, and you would go, wait a second, you have not applied that wallet knowledge very practically. I am not very wise when it comes to my diet. Shocker. Wisdom is taking that knowledge and saying, and therefore, because I know how to eat well, I also eat well. I don't. That's the difference. Wisdom is when that knowledge is applied practically. Well, good news for us, the scriptures give us a story about how Solomon took that wisdom and applied that knowledge and applied it to a practical situation and it was demonstrated as wisdom. Here's how the story opens. Solomon, doing one of the jobs that kings in that day did, was he also served the role as judge. And before him, two women come in. These are two prostitute women who live together in a home and they both had babies within three days of each other. And so they are living in their socially outcast poverty situation, both raising brand new babies in this desperate moment. And they come before the great king of the nation. Part of wisdom is paying attention to the small places that other people tell you don't matter. But that's a side point. Here's what they say. During the night, this woman's son died because she laid on top of him. So she got up in the middle of the night and she took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep and she put him by her breast and she took her dead son and put him by mine. And then the next morning when I got up to nurse my son and he was dead, but then I looked at him closely in the morning light and I realized this was not the son that I bore. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. You can imagine the scene. The important, honorable, wise king sitting on the throne has these two ladies yelling at each other over this absolutely horrifying situation. While the baby is sitting here and they're trying to decide who gets the baby who's left. This is like uh, movies in the 90s where if you said, man, if they just had a cell phone, this would all be solved. Uh, if they just had a DNA test, this would have been very easy, but unfortunately they did not. But Solomon, because he's wise, knows what to do. Are you ready? Here comes Solomon's wisdom. He says, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. And then I'm sure they're wondering, what is he going to do? And he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut that baby in half. And we're going to give half to that lady and half to that lady. That's how we'll solve it. You both want to argue about the baby? Great, we'll cut the baby in half. You each get half of the baby. That sounds crazy. Is it just me? Or does that sound like a really, like, wait, I thought this guy was wise. The solution is cut the baby in half? That seems like a problem. What comes next is where knowledge becomes wisdom. Because here's what happens. The woman whose son was alive, the real mom, was deeply moved at a love for her son. And she says to the king, please don't hurt the baby. Don't kill him. Let her have the baby. And the other woman says, neither of us are going to have him. Cut him in two. And Solomon knows what this means. He says, the, living ba the baby should go to the first woman. Her concern for him demonstrates who's really the baby's mother. See, the other lady, in her grief, is willing to hurt or harm anyone just so that they can feel the pain that she's feeling. 
And the first woman is willing to give up almost anything because of her deep love. And the king's wisdom is demonstrated. In fact, what it says is that Israel heard this verdict by the king and they held the king in awe because they saw how he had wisdom from God to administer justice. No one would have come up with this solution, but someone who had supernatural wisdom from God because this solution is crazy. And yet it worked. It did exactly what he thought it was going to do. It elicited truth. Israel's response feels like our response. We long for the wisdom of God to be lived in our midst. We might neglect to acknowledge that that's true. We might be in denial about the fact that we long for this, but deep within each one of us is an acknowledgement that the world is a messy, messed up, ugly, hard place. And what we want more than anything is someone to be wise. We want reassurance that someone knows what the heck is going on. We want reassurance that it's all going to be right someday. We want reassurance that there is a king who can make judgment that is right. That's what we really want. Now, part of what makes it messy is we want that to be us. I I want to be that king. But I know myself and I'm not even close. But I long for the wisdom of God to be lived among us. In my community, my redemption community uh, that I help lead, we've been working through the book of Hebrews, reading a chapter a week and reading through it. In Hebrews chapter 1, if you're not familiar, the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews was written uh, following the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. It's, It's written to a church primarily made up of Jewish converts to following Jesus the Messiah. And what that letter is really attempting to do is try to integrate this idea that Jesus is the faithful Messiah that Israel's been waiting for and how that integrates with this long history of faith that they've had. It's written a thousand years after this moment, but it's really attempting to try to integrate these things. How is Jesus the king today fit together with this old faith that we've always had? And here's what the letter opens with saying. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, ancestors like David and ancestors like Solomon, through the prophets of many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir over all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Solomon is held in amazement because he's given the deluded gift of God's wisdom to him to interact with the world. And to follow Corey's question, he doesn't always choose to enact that wisdom. In fact, there are many times he falls down. A spoiler alert, things don't always go well for Solomon. In fact, the end of his life is kind of a mess. What Hebrews tells us is that when we look back at stories like this, when we look back at men like Solomon, when we look back at prophets like Nathan, and we see pictures of God's wisdom breaking through into humanity, it was just a taste of what God had to offer. And in Jesus, he inhabits inhabits humanity personally and comes to walk among us. The people of Israel are amazed By the way Solomon can enact wisdom, how amazing is God himself walking among us? His name is Jesus. 
And he is the wisdom of God made manifest among us. He is the king that sits on the throne for all eternity. Solomon gets a good 40 years and that's about it. We talk about his empire, the small little part of the world that existed for a short period of time. Jesus, the creator, the sustainer of all things, sits on the throne, ruling with wisdom, perfectly enacting his knowledge, and he will do so for all eternity. And folks, we've been invited into his kingdom. We get to stand in awe of that king. Not Solomon who's going to let us down. Not Solomon who's going to screw it up. Not Solomon who's going to die. Jesus. You might say like, well, how do I find wisdom in my life? Proverbs are great. They tell me how to enact it. I just want to give you, as we wrap up here this morning, here's what I think it looks like. If this is the truth, if Jesus is the imprint of God's nature, if he is God in flesh, if he is wisdom on two legs, and he reigns for all eternity in heaven, then we got some things we can do. Number one, we can see wisdom by seeing Jesus. I love that this story couples these two things together. One, Solomon asks for wisdom. Two, he enacts wisdom. Great, that's awesome. One story. I'm never going to have to deal with that situation in my own life, I don't think. The Gospels let us watch Jesus walk through three years of his ministry, and we get to see in countless places how he encounters people, how he treats people, what he confronts, what he teaches. We get to see wisdom enacted in all kinds of parts of life because we can see Jesus, spend time in the Gospels. Secondly, we can enact wisdom when we act like Jesus. If you want to be a wise person and act wisely, try to emulate Jesus, because he is the demonstration of what wisdom looks like. And lastly, if we long to be near wisdom, then we can be near wisdom when we're near Jesus. This is the truth of what the Gospel says that if we are wise and we humble ourselves and admit that we need a savior because we are not the kings who can figure this out on our own. We have failed, we have fallen, but Jesus has fulfilled it all and he has offered to draw us close. We can be engrafted into his kingdom. We can be heirs with him by putting our faith in him then if we desire to be near wisdom, then we should be near Jesus. And we can be near him by abiding in him through prayer, through the corporate gatherings, through spending time in uh, the scriptures, through spending time in community with other believers, encouraging each other to follow him. Wisdom is near at hand. And we can spend time with him. I'm going to invite the worship team up and we're going to spend some time in communion together. And I want to recast communion for us this morning as we take communion. When you came in this morning, there was a cup with a wafer and juice there on your chair. I'd love for you to grab that and start preparing yourself because what communion does is invite us to participate in remembrance in the life of Jesus in the death of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus. For those of us that are here tonight, today, this morning, and we have put our faith in Christ, then you have been united. You have been made one with the wisdom of God incarnate. It's an incredible truth. You are part of him. 
And in taking communion in this moment, you get to take that wafer, which represents his body, which was given and broken for you, and you get to inhabit Jesus. That wisdom of God that you can remember here in this moment is demonstrated by him giving of his life. Likewise, on the night that he had gathered his friends together for a Passover meal, he took a cup and he said that that cup represented his blood, a new covenant between God and man. And in God's wisdom, God understood that we were not going to keep up our end of the bargain. And so in his wisdom, he kept up both ends. He sets the expectation and he meets it. And then he tells us we get to participate in that covenant through faith. There's not something magical that's going to happen when you drink that cup, but you are participating through faith in belief in the wisdom of God made manifest in Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. And you are part of his great people more than can be counted by participating in that. Maybe you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've been around church. Maybe you're desperately searching. Maybe you're here because there's some small hope in you that wisdom might be found in this place. I'm here to tell you good news. Wisdom is here, but it's not us. It's Jesus. And there's an invitation on the table this morning to participate in his life and his death and his resurrection through communion, through faith, through belief. Jesus tells us what it looks like to get into the kingdom and it is not by performance. It is not by doing the right things. It's by submitting yourself to the truth that he is the king and that he reigns and that he has made all things right with God. And if you want to participate in that kingdom, if you'd like to be included, you can be right now in this place, right at this time. All it takes is belief in your heart that that is true and a confession with your mouth that he is Lord and you can eat and you can drink and you can be part of his wisdom community. He's our king. We get the gift of participating in that this morning. I want to just give you a moment or two to reflect on the beauty of that truth. The wise king is our king. The wise king knows you. He loves you and he's drawn near. Then you can eat and you can drink and out of that we'll celebrate and we'll worship together.